The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, if you'll turn in your scriptures, please, uh, you'll find a copy of the Bible, I think, in the pew in front of you, um, to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through to verse 56, and you'll find that on page 855 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 through to verse 56. The whole text is our, our sermon text today. Briefly, uh, the context of Mary's song, and then we'll spend most of our time this morning looking at Mary's song in verse 46 following. Well, this is God's word. Let's give our diligent attention to it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Indeed, with Mary, Lord, our soul magnifies you this day, and we pray that you would open up your word now, opening up our hearts, that we also might rejoice with full joy at this narrative of the conception and the great work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be pleased to bless me with words and all of us with ears, Lord God. Work in us faith in the Christ, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mary's song, The Magnificat in Latin, is a remarkable hymn of praise, is it not? A hymn of gladness, a hymn of joy, a hymn of admiration at the great work that God had promised through Gabriel and now was doing in Mary and would fulfill in the coming of our Lord. We have to say this, the Hebrew longing for the ages, the Christ, was about to come. And Mary was about to give birth to that Christ, the Messiah. What a staggering moment in the life of Mary, a staggering moment in the life of Elizabeth, in the life of the nation, and we have to say, in the history of the world. And Mary's hymn, which is a scripture-saturated, God-honoring, salvation-celebrating praise song, reminds us of those deep realities, what God would do through the Christ. Mary's chief response to the narrative or the announcement in her pregnancy with the Savior is worship. And I want to say to us today, friends, that ought to be our principal response to this text this morning also, worship. I want us firstly to look at the occasion for the Magnificat, for Mary's song, in verses 26 to 46, looking at it very briefly. What's the context? What's the occasion of her song? And then secondly, we'll look at the theology of Mary's song, the occasion, and then the theology of Mary's song. The occasion is remarkable. We could call it the unlikely circumstance of the Savior's birth. Six things, very briefly, jump off the page at me when we think of our Savior's birth. The first is there in verse 27, verse 27 Uh, that the angel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. They're engaged. We'll not find a more unlikely conception 
for one who was to fulfill all righteousness and bring salvation to all of God's people will not find a more unlikely conception than this one. A conception out of wedlock. A pregnancy out of wedlock. It's an early sign in Luke's gospel that the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, was not going to conform to Jewish expectations or to worldly expectations of a Messiah. Yet to those who knew their scriptures, and to us who should know our scriptures, this was entirely predictable, that it should be a virgin that should conceive and bear a son. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us was conceived in such a manner. The second unlikely thing about the conception of Christ is the place where it happened. Nazareth, we read that there in verse 26, a city of Galilee in the north of Israel, the the region of Galilee, the city of Nazareth. Those of you who know your Bible will know that Nazareth was a despised place. Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, The Jews had a phrase at the time of Christ, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come from Galilee? And yet those who knew their Old Testament scriptures once again would know that that was precisely the place where salvation would come from. Isaiah chapter 9. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It says he will make it glorious. Isaiah 9 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, while Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth, certainly he was associated with Nazareth, Nazareth, hence his name, Jesus of Nazareth. From there would salvation come, a place despised by the Jews. The third thing about this incredible, miraculous conception is the identity and the, the work of this child. Verse 31 You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What is a word of blasphemy for the world is a word of worship for the Christian. Jesus, we bow at the name of Jesus. We love the name of Jesus. We rejoice in the name of Jesus. Why? Because it means you will save your people from their sins. The Joshua, the Lord is salvation, was coming. Gabriel says he will be great, the son of the most high, and he'll sit on the throne of his father David. Listen, God's son would be Mary's son, and that son would be a royal son, and his throne would be forever, everlasting. That's what God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and here is a baby going to be born, who would sit on that throne in an everlasting fashion. There is no end to the reign of King Jesus. But how will this happen? Fourthly, it's by means of a miraculous conception, verse 34, verse 35. 
Mary said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She's betrothed. She's yet to have sexual relations with her future husband, but she's going to conceive. How? Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. A miraculous conception, listen, of Jesus, not of Mary. A miraculous conception of Jesus. So much so that this one is called by the angel Gabriel, holy and the son of God. Holy in that he comes from God. Holy that he is God. Holy in that he will be born without a sin nature so that he might redeem those who have a sin nature and are afflicted by the curse of our own sins. Yes, a miraculous conception. Fifth, another miraculous conception, that of Elizabeth, her cousin. We read in the text she's far too old, humanly speaking, to have children, but God has done a great work in her also, so that she might be the bearer of whom? Of John the Baptist, the one who would go and prepare the way for the Lord. And finally, the sixth thing we see in this text so far is the submission of Mary by faith. The submission of Mary by faith. Verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's staggering, friends. Mary's a young woman. She's probably not even 20. She's a young woman. And she's just had this announcement dropped on her by the angel Gabriel. And there's no fuss. There's no resistance. There's puzzlement in her mind. We read verse 29, even great trouble. What does she say? She says, not my will, but thine. This is remarkable. She is a young woman evidently raised and taught to trust the Lord, to look to God, to look for the Messiah and to submit to God's great will. And that's what she does. She submits. Friends, there's a few lessons for us very briefly here. This is the plan of salvation being unfurled before our very eyes. And if we were left to find a way to save ourselves from our own sins, this is most certainly not the way we would choose. I mean, humanly speaking, who in their right mind would do this? We would find a way which pleased our human senses was the product of rigorous planning. We'd ensure that all our bases were covered. And as far as we were able, we'd want to ensure that this plan of salvation came from a position of strength. But friends, here we see God's position of strength. Here we see the wisdom of Almighty God. A virgin. A conception out of wedlock in a place of obscurity and low esteem, not powerful, not wise by human standards. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds us of this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul adds to that. 
uh, reflecting on the reality of the gospel that, that it's not the great and the good of society. Those who felt no need, it's not that kind of person that came to Christ. It's those who knew their need. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Friends, we need to understand when the eyes of flesh deceive us or attempt to deceive us, the eyes of faith will reveal the power and wisdom of our great God. And we can apply that principle to any circumstance in life, any circumstance of need, of trial, of hardship, of bereavement and loss. When we are weak, then we are strong. That's the message of the virgin birth. And it's these events that lead to Mary's song. We wonder perhaps what's going through Mary's heart and mind when she hears this announcement, when she visits with Elizabeth. Well, we know what's going through her heart and mind because she put it down on paper. She wrote a song. And we find that, secondly, in the theology of the Magnificat. What does Mary actually say? The first thing I want us to note is this, that she's a submissive Christian. She submits the will of God. Friends, submissive Christians are worshipping Christians. They're worshipping. They're always ready to worship because they've submitted to the will of God. Mary's song here is an outpouring of a woman raised in the faith. A woman saturated in her Old Testament scriptures and a faith which yields deep theologically rich worship friends the next time you hear the average contemporary christian worship song compare it to mary's magnificat what a difference you'll see we're not called to dumb down worship we're called to enhance it and see the depths of biblical worship the first thing mary does is praise god for personal blessings personal blessings verses 47 to 50 there is here a supernatural outpouring of praise and gladness which the spirit has wrought in mary for the purposes of this song and then wrought in the writer of the gospel so that this might become god's very word the holy scriptures for us in other words the fingerprints of the holy spirit are all over this song and mary's worship here becomes for us the word of god a great teaching tool for our souls she says this my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior Pause for a moment, friends, and think on these words. Listen to the magnification of Almighty God. The rejoicing in the Lord. The rejoicing in her God, who is her Savior. And notice this, it's a personal song. My soul magnifies. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, He has done, verse 49, great things for me. 
This is the outpouring of a Christian. One who loves the Christ, not because he's her son, but because he is her saviour. Mary realises, you see, in this moment, that the child that is presently forming within her womb is the God-supplied, God-sent Redeemer, even of herself. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Her first thought, friends, is to magnify the Lord, to make the Lord big in her vision and perspective. Mary, friends, is a worshipper, a worshipper. But she tells us also why she's a worshipper, verse 48 through to verse 50. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. The Lord has changed her position in life. Mary, who as far as we know was was humanly speaking nothing, a nobody, not the great and good of Jewish society, But now she says, by virtue of this grace of God, the Messiah to be born of her, she says, all generations will call me blessed. As the song speaks, most highly favored lady. This is Mary. That God had lifted her up from the ash heap of life so that she might be the mother of our Lord. And friends, what God does for Mary in this by grace, taking her from the ash heap and sitting her with great glory and honor, is a picture of what God does for all Christians in salvation. It's a picture, in fact, of what Hannah, who also had a miraculous conception with Samuel, said in her own birth song in 1 Samuel 2. We read this, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's what God does for his children. That's what God did for Hannah. That's what God (coughs) is doing for Mary. And I want to say to you, dear friend, if you're a Christian here today, truly, sincerely a Christian, then this is true of you also. God has raised you up from the ash heap. He has removed you from the sin pile and has made you sit with kings and princes. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Notice this, the attribution of this work to God alone. He who is mighty has done this. We never bring glory to ourselves. But it's not just that God has done mighty and great things. It's the manner in which he does them. Plenty of people can do mighty works. Great rulers can do works which would terrify our souls, but they don't do them in an holy manner. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Think on that for a minute. What's Mary saying here? God is upright in all that he does. God is upright in what he has done to me even though the conception of the Christ had the appearance of evil before marriage, 
even though it would lead to trouble for Mary, though it would lead to trouble for the Christ, she says, holy is he. Friends, that's a lesson for each one of us today. Whether in times of blessing or hardship, trial, loss or sorrow, God never does anything which contradicts his holy character. He is always holy. Moreover, he remembers those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 50, his mercy. It shows all this is undeserved. His mercy is from generation to generation. It's one of the many allusions to the old covenant scriptures in Mary's song. It's directly lifted from Psalm 103, verse 13. God's mercy to his people. Friends, what does this mean for us? I fancy it means perhaps some uncomfortable things for us. Worship is front and center on Mary's mind. It's a lesson to the church on the Lord's Day. It's a lesson to the broad church, especially on this Lord's Day. Can we believe that today, that a secular holiday like Christmas, because it's not found in Scripture, friends, hate to disappoint you, it's not found in Scripture, that a secular holiday has led to vast swathes of the church cancelling worship today so they can celebrate Christmas with their families? It's staggering. Staggering. Article written in one newspaper had the headline, O come all ye faithful, unless Christmas falls on a Sunday. Or another one, Jesus is the reason for the season, unless Christmas falls on a Sunday. I'm glad so many people are here today. Praise the Lord. But friends, does it not tell the world what we think of God and Jesus and what we think of Santa when the church chooses to cancel worship in favor of Christmas. But friends, we have to look at ourselves a little bit more closely as well. Is worship a matter of your personal rejoicing, dear friend? I wonder if we'll be as full tonight as we are this morning. Is worship a matter of your rejoicing? As it is for me, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. With all the regular providential hindrances taken into account, how many of you will choose not to come back to worship tonight? I'm not talking about if you're visiting, it's different. How many of us will choose not to come back to worship tonight and choose, in fact, every week not to come back to worship? I don't think that's the heart of Mary. I don't think it's what this text is teaching us. I don't think it's what is the heart of the Christian. Friends, worship ought to be our greatest joy, our highest duty, and nothing, providential hindrances aside, ought to stop us from that. I want to say also, friends, are we trusting the Lord in the way that Mary is trusting the Lord? Her life has just been turned upside down upside down we'll return to that thought in a few moments but she says i am your servant let it be to me according to your word 
Whate'er my God ordains is right, she says. Let that be our confession also. Do we also trust God as holy? Is, is his work and his word all that he does? Are we trusting in it, even those hardships, saying God is holy and shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That must be our faith as it was Mary's. But in verse 51, Mary continues. She continues thinking in worshipful tones about God's work more broadly than herself. She's thinking about two groups of people. She's thinking of those who are proud and lifted up and those who are humble. She says there in verse 51, He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We need to understand two matters here. First of all, is a matter of tense. Of what is Mary speaking? She's speaking of the past. He has shown, he has scattered, he has brought and exalted and filled all reflections of what God has done in the past. A true reflection of God's dealings with his people and God's dealings with those, whether in his people or out of his people, exalted themselves against him. But we have to say also that what Mary says here, while looking at the past and praising God for it, also kind of speaks prophetically to us about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we not see in these verses the echoes of Christ's warring and resisting the Jewish establishment, the religious establishment? Do we not see echoes of Christ's ministry to the poor, to the outcast, to the sick and the needy? Do we not see echoes of him and his servants standing before kings and rulers and withstanding them? Do we not even see echoes, perhaps, of the rich young ruler, the rich he has sent away empty? Friends, the fundamental shape of the gospel and of Christianity is not God helps those who help themselves, but God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And scripture teaches us that that humility is itself a gift of God and spirit wrought. But the principle is well stated. As we read the scriptures, we read the Old Testament, we read the Gospels, we simply do not see those who think they are righteous, who think they are spiritually healthy, who think they are doing just fine. We do not see them, by and large, coming to faith in Christ. We see the poor, the needy. Those who were cast down, those who saw some sort of need in their lives, whether physical or spiritual or a mixture of both, they are the ones who came to Christ. And this is a call to us here today, dear friends. It's a call to any here today who don't have Christ as Savior and think they have no need of Christ as a Savior who are living in proud self-reliance, ignoring the claims of God. Friend, I have to say to you, you are in danger. And the danger is pressing, it is imminent, and it is great. 
And the danger is this, that you will die in your sins and face the judgment seat of God because of it. And we would not have it so. Listen to what God does to those who exalt themselves. He scattered the prouds in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty. He sent the rich away empty, spiritually speaking. Friend, if you're without Christ this day, we would appeal to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and you shall be saved. And remarkable blessing, perhaps for the first time, will enter into your life in a way you cannot even begin to imagine. We don't tell you this because we think we're better than you. We tell you this because it's happened to us. And we want the same for you, dear friend. Perhaps there are some here who are doubting Jesus today. This babe in the womb, it's a nice story. It's, it's on our you know, Christmas cards, on our mantelpiece and so on. But you're doubting Jesus. You've got struggles of faith. This babe would later grow up and say to you, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come unto me this day. Commit yourself fully to the Christ. The one who is so full of grace, so full of blessing, so full of mercy, dispensing life, unending life. Don't doubt him. Trust him fully. And to you, dear Christian, I say this. Daily remember your own need. Your own needs of repentance and confession. There is always a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's always a way back to the Savior for the child of God. Flee proud thoughts. Put yourself in the place of the humble and the hungry. Because that's when the Lord, according to Mary, fills you with good things. And Mary's last section of praise, very briefly, is because of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Note the verbs of this passage. Helped, remembered, spoke. Helped, remembered, spoke. And another important word in there, mercy. Mercy. God was merciful, was he not, when he first revealed himself to his people? Look at the end of verse 55. He spoke to Abraham and to his offspring, promising to be God to him and to his children after him that he would send a seed to redeem him. He'd provide him with a land which was a picture of heaven itself. God revealed and spoke these promises repeatedly to the patriarchs, to the fathers. And yet in fulfillment of that promise, it required God, humanly speaking, to remember. Not that God ever forgets, but this is the language Mary uses he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Why did it need a remembrance of mercy? Because Israel, the son, the child, the nation, proved so unfaithful 
They were an adulterous people, spiritually speaking. They chased after false gods. They broke the law. They broke covenant. And if it were not for God remembering his mercy to them, if it were not for God remembering his mercy to us, we would not be here today, friends. This is as much about us as it is about them. You see what Mary's saying. There is sure and certain hope in God's faithfulness. Sure and certain hope that he will keep his covenant and that his plan of salvation is in no way derailed by our failure as his people. She's saying this. The babe born in her womb, or the babe growing in her womb, rather, would once and for all remedy remedy sin and estrangement from God and curse and bring salvation. How would Christ do that? How would the Christ bring that remedy? Just a chapter later, we read this when Mary takes Jesus to the temple and meets Simeon. And Simeon says this, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. From his infancy, his earliest days, Mary knew that something catastrophic would happen to her son. Imagine a sword piercing your soul. His death. His crucifixion. You see, in the birth of Christ, we understand that the God-man stepped into our existence to render perfect obedience according to the law of God, to fully drain the wrath of God at Calvary and thus deliver those whose faith was in him. That's to say, friends, the birth of Christ ought never be separated from the life of Christ. And the life of Christ ought never be separated from the death of Christ. And the death of Christ ought never be separated from the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And the resurrection and ascension of Christ ought never be separated from the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming again in glory and with power. And he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And that's what we see in seminal form in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The seed of full salvation from election past being outworked in time to future everlasting life and glory in the presence of God. Jesus Christ is the answer. Friends, the babe in the womb and the babe in the manger are to be replaced with the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, who's going to sit on his great white throne and cast down sin and Satan and death and all his enemies once and for all and gather unto himself his children, his brethren, who shall dwell 
immortally with him for all eternity. Thanks be to God.